Welcome to the Civil Service World podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Susanna. And each week we'll be exploring an issue that matters to civil servants in their professional lives. In this week's episode, we're asking, who is the modern civil servant? The stereotype of a civil servant is a middle-aged, middle-class man, a fan of pen-pushing, possibly has a briefcase, maybe even a bowler hat. (laughs) We know, and most of our regular listeners know, that this is far from the truth. The civil service as a whole is actually pretty diverse. Over half of civil servants are women, 12.7% are from ethnic minority backgrounds, 11.7% are disabled and 4.9% are lesbian, gay, bisexual or other, although that's not a full picture as not all civil servants choose to declare their sexual orientation. How many are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds? Well, we don't know because it hasn't formally been measured, but it is being measured because in this year's civil service people survey, it was a, a question in there. And so next year we should hopefully have an idea. And we do know that 15 departments were listed in the Social Mobility Employer Index earlier this year as exemplars of good practice. The problem is, though we might have lots of civil servants from different backgrounds, are they making their way up to the top? And are they having a say in decisions that affect how policy is made and delivered? Do they feel included? Do they feel safe to challenge? There's no point filling a room with 50% women and 20% British, Asian, minority, ethnic civil servants and so on if it's only white men from Oxbridge who are actually being heard and who are actually taking the major decisions. And when you look at the top of the civil service, the diversity across the whole service isn't reflected. So just 5.2% of senior civil servants have a disability. 6% are from BAME backgrounds, although the good news is that both of those proportions are rising. 45% of senior civil servants are women. Again, that's been rising slowly. And again, on socioeconomic background, we don't have figures yet. But if you take a look at the educational background of permanent secretaries, you still see they're mostly from Oxbridge, independent schools. People, as a perm sec once put it to me, who grew up with parents listening to the Today programme around the breakfast table. Today, we have with us two civil servants who are among the many working hard to change things. Charlotte Dring was the founding chair of the Civil Service Social Mobility Network. She won a Civil Service Award in 2018 for her work championing social mobility. And she's now at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government working on the Beyond Whitehall project. And we're also joined by Emran Mian, who is also at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. He's Director General for Decentralisation and Growth. So this is an exciting time for both of you. Emran was formerly at the DfE and the Cabinet Office, and he wrote an article for Civil Service World magazine earlier this year, encouraging senior civil servants to stop thinking that they are good people who couldn't possibly be racists and start having tough conversations about why there are so few BAME people in the top of the civil service. So, Charlotte, take us back to when you first began this work. What was it like for you when you first joined the civil service? I joined the civil service back in 2012, so just over seven years ago now. I moved from my hometown of Cleethorpes to to do that. And when I joined, I was struck by how different I felt to the people around me. I felt different in a bad way. I didn't sound like them, I had a different accent, I used different words. I remember really vividly that I would sit in many meetings watching conversations happening and feeling like I didn't know when to interject, how to interject and feeling like I would be judged when I did because I felt that I couldn't articulate my points in the same way that other people did in meetings. 
And what that meant was just that I was, you know, wandering around this, the civil service, wanting to do well, having good points inside me that I thought would help and make a difference. But I just didn't have the confidence to, I think, to reach my potential to be as good as I, I, as I could be. And that feeling stayed with me for a good few initial years in the civil service. It wasn't until I went to work as a private secretary for Melanie Dawes, who was also the gender champion at that time, when I started to learn more about diversity and that there were other people who felt like this from from different backgrounds. But there wasn't all that much going on around social mobility in particular at that time. So what did you what did you do about it? (laughs) Yeah, good question. Um, Eventually, after just, you know, having lots of conversations with myself in my head, um, I plucked up the courage to speak to Melanie about it. I remember going to lots of meetings with her on gender where senior women would talk about how it felt to be a woman in a room full of men and how you really felt aware of your gender because it was it was a difference in the room. And I reflected on how I never really felt conscious of my gender as a you know fairly low grade. Gender was kind of 50-50, it felt quite equal. But what I I could relate to what she was saying when it came to my class. I felt like a working class woman in every room I was in, in every meeting I was in with every person that I met. And I remember one day I got the confidence to speak to her about it and how I felt it was really strange that there was all this work going on. And people would refer to the white middle class man as the stereotypical civil servant. Yet that was where the kind of acknowledgement started and ended. There was there was nothing going on to tackle that. And it was by complete coincidence and luck that actually Melanie was able to say that the civil service had clocked this and they were about to announce a new strand of the diversity strategy and a new permanent secretary champion for social mobility. And she put me in touch with people starting to work on this in the cabinet office. And it was from there that I met other really passionate civil servants who were thinking about setting up networks. Indeed, there were there are a couple of people in the fast stream space who were setting up a fast stream network. And there was a lot of appetite for a wider network. So it was through, to be honest, a bit of privilege in the role that I was in and the access that I had at that point that opened a door that allowed me to find other passionate people, other people who were feeling exactly the same. And the power of finding people who feel the same as you should not be underestimated. And from there, we went on to set up the network together. So networks are obviously a key part of the civil services diversity work. But for the listeners who are not part of a network, what does a network do? Many networks do different things, but there are some commonalities across all of them. The first thing they do is they give you a group of people who get it. They get how you're feeling, they get the challenges you're facing. And so automatically, you no longer feel alone. And it was really like genuinely career changing for me to be in a room of people who were from similar backgrounds to me and who felt how I felt. And before I started talking about it and before I'd found these people, I felt very alone. And it was it was like an instant win for my confidence. I was no longer alone just by entering a room with other people who felt the same. So there's something in just finding people like you who get it that is p- really powerful in itself and something that networks do really well. And then when you get that passion and experience in a room together, you've got real potential to drive change. So the other things networks do is, yes, talk about the problems and the challenges, but then put their heads together to come up with actions that will make a difference. So you not only improve your own working experience, but you are improving it for people who are going to come and join the civil service after you. Before we talk about what's changed, if we could take Imran, take you back as well to when you joined the civil service as a fast streamer. What was your experience? 
So when I joined the civil service, um, it was 2002. Um, as your question says, I joined as part of the fast stream. The department that I joined in, I think there was one other fast streamer who wasn't white. And that person left after a few short months and declared to me on their way out that this place wasn't for people like us. But I stayed. I was doing a job that I really enjoyed. I felt that I'd come into the civil service for reasons of wanting to work on issues of, of, of public concern. And that's what I got in my first job. So I decided to stay despite that slightly kind of excluded experience I had at the beginning. And I'm very glad that I have done. But it has been really important to have kind of support in some of the ways that Charlotte talked about um, from networks, whether formal or informal, and then critically also from kind of managers and senior people. I think it's really, really important to feel that there are senior people in the organization who kind of get it, that the organization needs to go through a bit of a cultural change and that they're keen to make that cultural change happen. And now, many years later, that I find myself in a more senior position, that, that's, that's really important to me, to be one of those people who's helping to indicate for new people coming into the organization, for people who might be feeling a bit stuck in the job that they're in, people who might have a different, you know, a, a, a difficult experience of the civil service from time to time, but to help them to realize that actually there is a set of people, uh, including quite near the top of the civil service, who want to change that, and that we're willing to talk about um, what those challenges are and how we put them right. You had a number of senior positions in various departments, including the Cabinet Office, before you left government for a while to work at the Social Market Foundation, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, so when you were in government before, the kind of excuse or the, the answer to problems of ethnic diversity at the very top levels of government was, oh, don't worry, it's the pipeline, we've got the pipeline, like the pipeline's improving. When you came back into government after that break... Had that pipeline materialised at senior levels? So I think we're in pretty good shape now as a civil service on the pipeline. I see lots of really talented people in the grades below senior civil service. Um, I think departments, uh, including the one where I work now and the one where I used to work, the Department for Education, are now much more rigorous about looking at who their talent is in those grades below the senior civil service and making sure that there's a plan for how to support those individuals in their career. And I think we're doing that for you know, all the talented individuals uh, who fall into that category, but we're doing it with a particular interest in individuals who are from underrepresented groups in the senior civil service. So thinking about people with disabilities, thinking about people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, uh, and indeed as, as, you know, kind of the issues that Charlotte's talked about, talking, you know, people who, you know, don't necessarily fit the mould for other reasons because they might come from a different socioeconomic background. So I feel we've got to... Uh, we're more disciplined now about thinking about how do we bring that talent through. I think we are kind of getting to a better place in terms of representation in the senior levels of the civil service too. I do sometimes still get myself caught short though when I'm talking to somebody who's at that early career or mid-career phase and their experience of work is still from time to time marred by things that they shouldn't really have to deal with anymore and things which you would hope uh, an organization like ours didn't you know didn't manifest anymore 
Such um, as? You know, so, you know, it happens to me as well. You know, I'll walk into a room and it's a room of 25 or 30 people and I'm the only non-white person in the room. And it was the case before with women who were at the very top of the senior civil and they'd walk into a room and it was all men. And when you're the minority and the minority of one walking into that room, you can't help but notice that that's the case and it affects your experience of being in the room. You mentioned that early colleague who said this isn't for people like us and left and obviously now speaking to early and mid-career people who feel this organisation may not be everything they want it to be and there could be other organisations that offer them better career opportunities, probably more money. What to you is key to keeping those, those talented people in the civil service? And why have those other organisations changed faster than Whitehall? So I think other organisations have probably changed faster because of what they tend to work internationally. Now, of course, parts of the civil service work internationally, but but not all of it does. And those organisations that work internationally, they just have a much more diverse pool of countries in which they're working, a talent pool, and indeed a much more diverse range of clients. Um, and that means that they want to represent that diversity in terms of who they are as an organisation. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on. I think it is also that some of those organizations, they've had some really exemplary leadership on this stuff, and that's helped the organization to shift. And we've definitely got that in some parts of the civil service now. We've got some really powerful diversity champions in the civil service, including at PremSec level. Um, but perhaps we haven't always had that great leadership. In terms of your question about why should people stay in the civil service despite sometimes their daily experience not being conducive to that. I think it comes down to, it, partly it comes down to helping people to kind of keep the faith that things are changing. They're not being fools by trusting things to get better. Things are improving and, and it's important to be able to show that with data as well as through active networks and so on. But then also it's about the mission. And, you know, I, I think for me, it, it, it does come down to the mission of the civil service. That's the reason why I've stayed beyond everything else. I think that's the reason, Charlotte, you're saying that you've stayed yes. above everything else. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's useful to reflect on that now. You know, kind of lots of the conversations that I've been having with colleagues over the last few days are all about how, you know, post this general election, we're in a situation now where we've got a government with a substantial majority and it feels like there's going to be quite a lot of momentum behind that public mission and getting some stuff done. And I think that ultimately is the, the biggest single reason why people come to the civil service and why people stay. Could you say a bit about the halo effect? Because that's the sort of darker side, if I'm not mixing metaphors, a dark halo of the public service mission you know we're all good people here we couldn't possibly discriminate because we're not racist and yeah could you say a bit more about that so i think if you work in a corporate law firm or an investment bank you probably don't go around thinking that you're a good person you don't take <laughs> that you don't take that for granted and so having a really active set of policies and practices as an employer that that, that are about improving diversity, that are improving people's experience of work, are what make you feel like a good person. And I think the flip side of us having such a strong mission in the civil service is we kind of feel like good people all the time. And I think there is a bit of a risk in that. Uh, there's a risk of kind of complacency that sometimes we don't, because we feel like we're good people anyway, we're not as active about our mission, our public service mission as we could be. Um, but it also does mean that sometimes I think we're complacent about diversity in our organisation. And people, unconscious bias, yeah. right? Because 
we're working in this public service organization. We're dealing with kind of service users and citizens who are in quite difficult circumstances all the time. So we must be good people, right? If that's what we've chosen to do, that must make us good people. Uh, and as a consequence, you know, surely we don't have to worry about diversity. Surely we don't have unconscious bias because we're, we're the front line of public service. And unfortunately, that halo, you know, not everybody who thinks they've got that halo really does wear the halo. And so I think we do have some issues about unconscious bias. I think one of those issues arises from the fact that, especially for a lot of senior civil servants, a lot of the contact they have with civil servants who are not like them, civil servants who might be from a different socioeconomic background or of a different colour, are in very junior roles often. So, you know, they might have somebody who manages their diary who's not white, Mm. or it might be that the person who's at security helping them get into the building is of a different socioeconomic class. And as a consequence, I, I, I wonder sometimes if there's a bit of an unconscious thing going on that they associate those characteristics with certain kinds of roles. Have you been mistaken for someone more junior? Yeah, no, that definitely happens from time to time. Uh, it happens inside the civil service. It also happens with kind of people I'm dealing with externally, I've got to say. Mm-hmm. You know, I do regularly have the experience where I'm at a kind of, you know, a meeting or a reception representing HM government. And I might be the only non-white person in the room. And people will kind of, you know, look at my name badge particularly closely. Mm. And I'll introduce myself as the position that I hold. And people will be like, they're, you know, they're not quite sure that, mm. that that is possibly the position I could hold. So they want to check your badge. And they're not convinced you really are that person until they've really sussed you out. Can I ask you, Charlotte, to talk a bit about your day job? Because I think it links to, first of all, the the public mission and the underlying reason for wanting to increase diversity in civil services to improve public outcomes as well as setting an example as an employer. But also your work is tied to this challenge of actually how do we get diversity across all professions, across all roles, and not just racial or gender, but geographical and social diversity. Yeah, absolutely. So in the, the day job, I work on the Beyond Whitehall project, which is very much focused on making sure that we as a civil service understand the lives of people across across the nation. So people like us, people different from us, people in different places from different backgrounds. There are two elements I'd particularly pull out. So one is a desire to have more roles, more policy roles, more senior civil service roles, all kinds of roles based outside of London and the South East. That is important for many reasons. I am particularly I think I particularly push the importance of geographical inclusion coming from a small seaside town in the northeast. It really matters. I think there is an interesting overlap with geography and social mobility. I haven't quite got my head around it fully, but there's a thing there. And I think having people like me from different parts of the UK is really important to an organisation like the civil service. So with the Beyond Whitehall project, we are looking at moving more roles over time outside of London to other places across the UK. The other element that's Equally as important, though, not just where we are based, but how we work. So no matter what office my home office is, whether it's London, Newcastle, Liverpool, whatever, how do we change the culture of the civil service so that we are all delivering our roles in the most inclusive way, that we are getting out, that we are talking to different people from different backgrounds in different communities across the nation, and that we are using that understanding from the people who are affected by what we do, as well as experts, other parts of government, etc. 
so that we're giving ministers the best advice, you know, the best picture of what is happening across the nation. And that's not just about solutions. It's about better understanding the problems, the challenges that we face and not thinking that as civil servants, it's our job to do that alone and that we, we you know, we best understand what's going on and, and the problems. Actually, we have a convening role. We have a very privileged role and we should be going about what we do in an inclusive way, listening, understanding, having empathy. So beyond Whitehall, yes, it's about increasing geographical diversity in the civil servants that we are that we bring in where we are based but it's also about challenging ourselves and how we go about our job and do we really understand what's going on. Charlotte what are some of the problems with measuring socio-economic background I mean I've read that you know some measures are whether that person had free school meals other times it's measured on whether that person's parents went to university is there a way of standardizing is it or is it more nuanced than other kinds of diversity I think it's less straightforward than some of the other types of diversity I think the civil service has done a good job of working with other people to try and get to an accepted standard across the UK of how you might try and measure this. There was work that began a couple of years ago with the civil service, working with academics, think tanks, private sector organisations, staff networks to try and get to an agreed way so that we could not only understand the position in the civil service, but we would be able to compare that with other organisations in other sectors. And I think that's really commendable, actually, that it was done in a really open collaborative way that looked beyond just the civil service and that's got us to a list of I think there's four or five questions that what could you give an example of um so one is around your parents occupation when you were 14 so they they are questions that do require you to step back in history ever so slightly so there is some but really simply that puts some people off it's not really straightforward to just tick a box and say where you fall you do have to think you have to try and remember and some people just might not be able to what I always say to that is just do your best and most departments and I think in the people survey as well there is an option to say do you self-identify as coming from a lower socioeconomic background so from what I gather the civil service is trying to do it the agreed way but also it's got this uh, self-identifying box which I think is good to look at the results across the two I think it's fair to say that collecting social mobility data is at a much earlier stage than some other strands of diversity in terms of people's understanding of why it matters to collect it and their willingness to share that data some people are a little bit uneasy I think it's probably fair to say about providing information on their background they question why it's needed why is it relevant will they be discriminated against if they mean people who aren't from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are on the defensive slightly perhaps I think there's a mix of both I've definitely experienced what you describe from some people but also people from working class backgrounds who have made it and are doing fine and sort of saying well why do you need to bring up my background why is this relevant to who I am and what I'm achieving today so interestingly I think there is some kind of scepticism or challenge from different kinds of backgrounds. My personal plea as someone who has had a particular experience joining the civil service and wants to make sure that people from all backgrounds being included is is please share it. It's all anonymized. It's completely anonymized. It won't affect you, your prospects, your job. 
but it will affect our ability as a group of people who care about this to understand the scale of the challenge that we might be facing, whether that's much smaller than we think, equal to what we think, or, or bigger than we think, and to really drill down in a way that we can do with gender, BAME, etc., to look at where the biggest challenges are. I really hope that people will give it a go and try and see if this does help us to better understand what's going on in the civil service and how we can make positive change. So Emran has said that things have improved or there's there's more to be done, obviously, for his experience. What about your experience? What progress have you seen around social mobility in, in the civil service? Something that I think is possibly underrated and so important is just the fact that we now talk about it. It is a thing. People that join now don't have that same questioning that I had of, goodness, isn't there a gap here? And how have they missed this gap? And why are they not doing anything about socioeconomic background of civil servants? So that is massive progress. This is an equal part of the strategy. It is on the agenda. People talk about it. People that join the civil service know that senior leaders care about it. So that is massive. The thing that I would challenge on, though, is that we haven't really got any greater understanding of the problem. Again, a positive, there is now a way of measuring socioeconomic background data It is being trialled in the People Survey. Some departments have got their own ways of measuring this um, as well. Well, own systems for measuring the same thing, I should say. So we will get there, but we haven't got there yet. So there's the same feeling that there's a problem with class, with background in the civil service, but we are no further on in defining it. The data is still not there, but I'm hopeful that next year it should be there. And why is it important for there to be the data? so that you can understand what the problem is. The problem at the moment is a feeling. Like I feel like I don't fit. I feel like I'm different. One of the most interesting things about starting talking about this and getting it to rise up the agenda was that actually you started to have senior civil servants blogging and a number of director generals who people would have assumed were from middle-class backgrounds. Mm. And they were blogging about their working class backgrounds and, and upbringing. And that was really powerful because it showed that actually you can get to the top you might have assumed that you didn't have many role models but there were many actually so it was encouraging in that respect it was also kind of disheartening and it is a bit disheartening that they've sort of just become this mold and the stereotype you know the accents have gone I was going to ask you about that because was it Bernadette Kelly in an interview with Civil Service World sort of admitting to having ironed out her is it her Brummie accent or she felt the need to iron out her Brummie accent and, and she now hopes that the changes she makes mean well, that yeah i'm not blaming her it. for doing blaming <laughs> yeah. the kind of workplaces that yeah. she was in a lot of people don't realize that she's of that stock are you hopeful that in a few years we can have thick regional accents around the perm sec top table and things like that because at the moment we don't really do yeah i hope so you know accents how you dress what kind of things you're interested in your ability to say for me something that's really changed is i used to pretend i liked going to museums and looking at art when i joined the civil service because everyone in my team did and i really don't like (laughs) i really don't like going to museums i really don't like art i can appreciate the talent that the people have but that's not how i like to spend my time and i pretended that I did. Mm-hmm. And I pretended that I liked certain foods. Like, I just want chips and beans. And, <laughs> and I'm really confident now to say, no, I don't want to do that. Or actually at the weekend, I did this. But for the first few years, I didn't say that at all. So I want people to be able to like what they like and be really confident about that. I want them to keep their accents. My sister picks me up all the time when she says I'm talking posh. And I'm really trying to not lose the accent that I've got. 
because it's not always conscious it just happens it gradually softens and it disappears and you you look at what people wear and for me I, I think about this all the time like what is professional and what has elements of class kind of just parceled within it you know do you talk in a certain way because that's professional or is it because people from particular backgrounds occupied those top positions so we assume that accent means professional but it's just a lack of diversity and I don't have all the answers I still I've been working in this space for a few years now but I still feel quite new I'm still developing what I think and how I feel but there's definitely something not quite right when everyone ends up sounding, looking, acting the same. That's not what we're looking for here. Similar conversations that have been had over the years around gender and leadership, you know, what we think of as a good leader, actually, is it just we're thinking of as a man leader rather than what actually is a genuinely good leader? So before we close, I think we'd like to ask you both, in your opinion, what still needs to be done? Emran, do you want to go first? So I think lots of good conversations are happening both about the experience of people from BAME backgrounds in the civil service and about their prospects for progression. I think a lot of the conversations are happening in quite private settings. So they're happening in management teams or they're happening one-to-one between mentors and mentees and so forth. I think bringing more of that conversation into a broader realm, I mean, in the way that this podcast does, but also in kind of all-staff events, all-SCS events, um, I think that's really important because it, this this isn't just a set of private conversations. This is a conversation about kind of the culture that we want to have as a civil service. Uh, and it's only by having the conversation out loud that we can give confidence to people who might be feeling out of place, that the organization is responsive to that and that wants to change that. Um, so I think continuing to kind of bring this conversation into sort of our public realm in the civil service, I think is something I want to keep doing. And then I think the other thing that's really important there is that I'm very happy to talk about this stuff. I also want colleagues who are part of the majority, if you like, to talk about it and to feel comfortable talking about it and to Mm. feel it's their issue as well. And I've definitely got some colleagues who do that, whereas I think some feel a bit more hesitant about it. And I want to get to the bottom of you know, with those colleagues, what is it that they feel hesitant about? How can, you know, people like me or Charlotte help them to to start the conversation? Do you think some of it is that in group meetings, they don't want to see be seen to be speaking on behalf of people from backgrounds of which they're not part? Yeah, no, I think there's definitely that. I think people don't want to represent experience that isn't their own. But I think as a leader and as a manager, you can always find ways to, you know, you just open up the conversation in different ways. So you don't have to speak for anybody else. You're, but, but you as a leader or a manager are creating the room for other people to speak and you're giving them the confidence to speak. I think there are people who, you know, might have grown up and had their early professional life in settings where perhaps... You know, they were surrounded by lots of people who were very much like them. And now being in a more diverse workplace, having more early career people coming through who have diverse characteristics is maybe there's something there just about, you know, it's okay to feel a bit uncomfortable with some of that. It's okay not to to feel sometimes you're going to use the wrong term. People aren't looking to trip you up. Uh, You can, you know, you can go ahead and have the conversation. I am um, heard recently from a another kind of senior champion for uh, for racial uh, diversity in the civil service who suggested that you know top leaders they do want to make change in their organizations but they don't know how and they would value almost like a playbook of what do we need to do how can we support 
Do you think that something like that is helpful or is that a bit too formulaic? Kind of does it need to be more cultural? I think it does need to be quite authentic. Um, mm -hmm. I think it does need to be done in the voice of that leader. I think management teams need to look at their data and decide a strategy that works for their organization. Mm -hmm. And that strategy will differ from organization to organization. You know, if you're a very operational organization in the civil service, your strategy for diversity is probably going to look quite different to if you're a bit of the organization that only has lawyers in it or a bit of the organization that only has policy civil servants in it. So I think kind of context is important. I think in terms of the playbook, um, there probably are a few things, though, that can go in the playbook for everybody. I think one is knowing what your, what your data is. I think there's an important thing about looking at it regularly. It's not just about looking at it once. Uh, look at it regularly. Use it to review what you're doing. Uh, use it to drive what you're doing. In the same way as we would on any other issue of where we want to make a change, let's do the same here. Let's bring the same kind of discipline to it. And then I think in the end, it also does, does come down to... It's not that complicated, really. It comes down to how you behave towards members of your team. Like, be kind, be considerate, think about how somebody else might be feeling, mm -hmm. and what hiring decisions you make. Um, if you've got a pattern of hiring people who are very much like you, you will know that, or somebody can point it out to you, and then you might want to you know, behave a bit differently. I don't feel like this stuff is particularly difficult intellectually, I think some of it is difficult for people in terms of getting started. And I think sometimes people feel emotionally that they're going to make a mistake. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we make it into public conversation, the more comfort we can give people about it. I think to add on the, the power of data, I'm always struck by how open the civil service is around measuring these things and how positive it is that they're measuring socioeconomic background. And over the years, I've been speaking to people and writing about initially gender diversity, the messages I always heard were change happened as we gathered the data and we kept the data at the forefront of people's minds and we could point to where there were gaps and keeping that on the, the leadership dashboard, as it were, was a big part of the change. But Charlotte, 2020 is the year that we're, civil service has pledged it was going to become the most inclusive employer. Yes. So from your perspective, what's your area for change yeah so I agree with everything that that Emran said for me and particularly on social mobility data is everything we have we are at a real turning point where we have the opportunity now to start getting that data I hope that it's published I hope that it's published on time I'm going to be honest I am slightly nervous I think there's been a lot of nervousness and anxiety around social mobility particularly at the start we saw some of the stories in the press mm -hmm. when the civil service went public on the fact it was going to start collecting data so I really want to see that data published and I will feel great when it is out there because then people like me in departments, in networks can start to look at that data and see what it tells us about different departments, about different grades. We can see from gender and other elements of diversity, you can see the grades where problems start to become bigger than they are at lower grades. You can see if you've got a problem at entry level, for example, we don't have that. So I hope that in 2020, we have access to much richer data that enables us to target what we're doing across the civil service. And for me, the other thing though is about behaviours. There's a book by Sam, Sam Friedman, I think, and he talks about dominant behaviour codes. I would like us to be much more curious and honest about what the rules are, what the norms are within the civil service and how that impacts people from particular backgrounds and ultimately changing those rules 
and norms. And I think they're one of the same because it's about data, it's about evidence. And that comes in two forms. Yes, it's your numbers and it's your stats, but it's your feelings and your experiences as well. And I really, I really hope the civil service is curious about both of those things and the power of what happens when you put them together and that it holds its nerve and it's brave about going in bold and first on making changes in the social mobility space that are more than just about outreach and recruitment. They're about how does it feel once you're here and do you feel like this place is for you and you can reach your potential, whatever that might be. Well, thank you both for your time. I think you have hopefully helped to bust the idea that civil service is full of exclusively middle-aged, middle-class men. And also, I hope, bust the idea that the civil service is just a group of pen-pushing people in Whitehall who don't really care much about what happens to the people outside, but actually a place full of individuals who have a strong sense of mission and actually really want to make a difference to people all across the country. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. But before we go, we've just got time for some quick terminological inexactitudes from our archive of Whitehallese. Up first is strong and stable leadership, which translates as we promise we mean it this time and we won't end up skulking off to edit a newspaper in 2021. And then we have machinery of government change. Think Titanic and the deck chairs, but with less calm and less orderliness. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Civil Service World podcast. Today's show marks the end of the current series of our podcast, but we'll be returning with more episodes in the new year. So don't forget to subscribe, do leave us a review and give us your feedback through our Twitter handle at CSW News on what you've liked and haven't liked about this series and what you think we should cover next year. In the meantime, we hope you all have a lovely break.